it is an incredible blessing to be here. I've been part of this church for for the better part of eight years when uh, God told us to sell our house in South Bend and to move here uh, on faith that God had uh, something for Jenny and I. And uh, it was amazing today. Uh, a lot of the prophetic words that were given during prayer time was that uh, old wells that have been all over this church were, were going to be starting to be sprung up, that we were to dig them out and that these wells were going to be gushing forward and that this water was starting to fill up like the, the pool of Bethesda up here up front. And, uh, I mean, we had literally probably four to five different matching prophetic words from separate people coming in today um, about this pool that where this angel will come and stir it up and people will come down and get healing. Um, I was reminded as during worship, by the way, the worship team, worship was amazing. It was amazing. And, uh, I mean, God has, God has his hand on you guys, and it's just beautiful to watch. Um, watch what you guys do. Um, but as I was out here worshiping, I remembered a, a time when we were driving into Chicago. We would come in for prayer trips, just kind of like, okay, what are you doing, God? Why are you sending us here? And I remember the day when we moved here, I remember sitting in the pa- <laughs> sorry. I remember sitting in the driver's seat, and out of heaven, I saw in the spirit an angel peel out of heaven and come down in front of our car and was literally parting the way for us. And I sat there, and I actually saw it, and <laughs> it's just like, my mouth just dropped. I'm like, I looked over at Jenny, I'm like, did you see that? And she goes, yeah, did you see that angel come down? He's doing like a, a barreling rolls as he's parting the spirit for us as we come into Chicago. Well, as we were doing worship today, I saw that angel barrel down here. And I didn't put two and two together until, I, you know, I'm slow sometimes. Saw the angel barreling down here um, and uh, was stirring up this pool this morning. And I think it's all connected. Um, but, uh, guys, it really is a blessing to be here. I'm honored. Um, I am very humbled. This body has been uh, a blessing to us. Um, I do want to take a moment to pray, and I want to go into something here. Lord Jesus, uh, Lord, I love you. And I pray that today that you would be honored. I ask now, Lord God, that ears would be opened and eyes would be opened. Father God, that your heart, your heart for this church would be just poured into us. So there, there are two different types of leaders. There's the type of leader that walks into a room and tells everybody that they're the leader. And then there's another type of leader that walks into the room and everyone knows that they're the leader. And that knowing comes from how that person has served them. And when I look at Andy, guys, I, I've gotten a chance to, over the past couple of months to get to know him. We've gotten, you know, some lunches together and just... Really, as I remember, if you guys remember two months ago when God really came to me and said, look, don't leave this church, just stay here, and put a burden in my heart. I, got to, I just started submitting myself to the leadership, started submitting myself to what God was doing here. And about a week ago, I was praying for today, and God came to me and just started downloading his heart for this church and downloading his heart specifically for you, Andy. And so if you don't mind, I'll take about two minutes here before I go into my, my testimony. But uh, Andy, you are one of those leaders that when you walk into a room, People know they're being served well, all right? And when you walk in here, you're the type of leader that, and you just set it up here. I, I, I even wrote down what God told me. He's the type of leader that wants to see the greatest potential in each and every one of you come to the fullness. A great leader is not someone who comes in and does it all. You know, I run a terminal here in Carroll Stream for Black Horse Carriers, and my, my initial 
understanding of leadership was I have to do everything. I have to do the billing, the payroll, the dispatching. And a true leader, um, that's not what a true leader does. A true leader empowers everyone else to come in and play their part and see them fully come into the fullness of what God has. And Andy, that is you. You have come into a place in this church as a, uh, as a man who walks in great humility. You have an incredible gifting, and there's just a peace upon you. And it's someone that I just, I, I am excited to submit underneath and to come alongside of. And uh, yeah, so the Lord told me, eight, or actually it was, it's almost been nine years now, that when we would come here to Chicago that I would be partnering with people. Um, almost like that covenant, you know, hand in hand, coming alongside of people to minister. Um, and uh, it's amazing because uh, I'm going re- to read the scripture for you, Andy. This is out of Isaiah 61. I believe there's a lot in there that, that pertains to a lot of people. But specifically, he said, um, Isaiah 61, and I pulled out probably five main points out of Isaiah 61. I'm going to read this for you. <coughs> he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me to bestow upon them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And out of all the scriptures and all of that, the one that kept on standing out to me was, God has put on you, Andy, an anointing for crowning people with splendor, which speaks of royalty, guys. My sister called me about a month ago, kind of when I was in my... I was in a, struggling with different things and wondering my place. And she said, Dan, I had a dream. And she said, in this dream, we were back at our old child house uh, where we grew up. And we were sitting at the top of the stairs. And you were kind of just sitting down with your back up against the wall. And there was a cactus standing behind you. And then to your right, there was this, like this throne chair that was right to your right. And she goes, I walked up the stairs. And I stood there looking at you. And this angel came right in front of me and started talking to me. And the angel said to my sister, do you know who this is? And my sister's like, that's my brother. And, he goes, and the angel said to her, he doesn't know who he is. He's a king. He's a king. And that was the dream. The reason I mention that is it would be arrogant of me to say any, anything otherwise. I am a king. Because God has made me one. And I am, as, as Romans eight seventeen says, that we are heirs. If we are children of God, we are heirs to him. We are co-heirs in his glory. Again, if we walk with him. I say the same thing over every one of you guys, is you guys are heirs to this throne. You guys share in that glory. When I look out and I see everybody here today, I see kings and I see queens of his royal court. And the enemy absolutely hates that. He wants to distort, he wants to twist any way possible to get you to not believe that about yourself. He's done it to me. It's nothing new. It's the, the very, from the very fall, and I'm going to, as I get through my testimony, I'm going to talk about the fall. But if you go back to even Genesis 3, the very words out of the serpent's mouth was, did God, did God really, did he really say that? Enemy will always start with deception. He always, always will start by attacking God's character. He wants to distort it. In fact, that's where we get our word wickedness from. Wickedness means twisted truth, a twisted light. And that's where we get the wick for a candle. The enemy will come and he'll take a little bit of that truth, he'll kill it, he'll twist it and inject it into your heart. I kind of look at, you know, the curse of works or religion kind of like a vaccine. A vaccine is, a, is let's think, think of like polio. 
polio is something that when they take the vaccine of it, it's a little bit of weakened strand of it or a dead part of that strand. They inject it in your system so that when if polio ever were to come, then your body has built up antibodies to reject it. The curse of works and the curse of that distortion of the enemy is the same thing. When it's injected into your heart, your body and your spirit, man, begins to build up antibodies to reject it. When the real thing does come, you don't want anything to do with it. That curse is working in all of us. And when I look at this body, guys, um, <laughs> when I was, uh, I got bit by a tick back in 2015 when I had Lyme disease. And I also, the same year, I got bit by a rabid bat. Um, so it, it was so it was so crazy that year, so much to the point where my neighbor actually peeled over the top of the fence and he goes, um, have you been messing with some Israelites, Dan? Because uh, you got like the 10 plagues going on over here. I mean, I had viral meningitis, I had influenza, I had pneumonia, got bit by a rabid bat, had the Lyme disease with my tick. I'm laying in bed uh, because they wouldn't let me come back to work because of viral meningitis. And I'm laying there in 2015 and I had a dream that uh, came, uh, basically we were building this wall kind of like Nehemiah. And I had a hammer, a large mallet in my hand, and there were just dozens of people. And I wasn't leading these people. It was just all around me. And I was hammering. They were hammering. And, it, and God says, this is, this is what I've called you to do, to do, Dan, is to come alongside of these people, and you're going to rebuild the wall. That's what's happening right now, guys. It's been four years later of just waiting and waiting. But that's what's happening. It's not just me, guys. It's happening in a lot of me. He talks about renewal happening in the church here. It's, that's what revival is. It's all of us coming together. Now, I bless the times where God's pouring out a spirit and we're, that's great stuff too, but real revival, and this is Andy's view of revival too, is that it's, it's the little sparks that he's lighting in all of our hearts. The phone calls where, I, or the text when you send, a, you, know, I, you know, send a text on a, on a given day where God says, go encourage that person now. Do this for this person. Pray this for that person. That's revival. And what's happening in this body is we're rebuilding something. If you look at what a wall is, what does a wall do? You look at why Nehemiah built, rebuilt the wall? Because Ezra came in behind him and built the temple. Well, you had to have a wall to keep the bandits and keep the, all the animals and everything from coming into their city and wreaking havoc. We build a wall here for protection. And the number one thing I think that God wants to protect is that each and every one of our hearts, we're protecting God's character. The enemy wants to distort it. But God has called his people to be those royal people that come alongside. And we band together and we build a covering here. There was another word that was given a couple weeks ago that this would be a tabernacle of peace. A place where God can come and you can feel safe to make mistakes here. You can feel safe to come here and know that God is doing something in your heart. You, you can, we can protect that. Because each of us has a different aspect of his giftings that when we come alongside of each other, we're protecting the character of God in our own hearts. Okay? So I want to go into my, uh, my testimony here a little bit, guys. Um, I was asking God, I'm like, I could get up here and I could share a, a lot of different things. But he, he kept on coming back to um, ministering to the heart. And really for the last 35 years, the theme of my life. Um, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and uh, probably uh, many of you maybe have grown up in Christian homes. It's all different for everybody. Um, but as I was going through my testimony, I'm like, God, I, I want to, what, what are you trying to get across today? And so my, my goal as I share my testimony, I'm going to end on some teaching, but the goal of the Lord's heart today is he wants to reveal to everyone here how he sees your heart. It's something I've wrestled with for probably the better part of my life of how he looks at me. In fact, my mom named me Daniel for that very reason. She writes in her journals that God gave her, 
my name Daniel. Uh, she, first of all, loved the scripture and those stories about Daniel, but she, she loved the fact that God gave Daniel his name, which means God is my judge. She probably knew that my greatest struggle would be self-judgment, would be condemnation, shame, fear, all the things that rob me of my identity because I judge myself. And so but my very name is Daniel. My mom gave it to me. But again, back to uh, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, my father was a graduate from West Point Military Academy. Uh, so I grew up in that whole Army versus Navy culture. I had banners hanging in my room. And I, I loved the stories that my dad would tell of the Army. Um, but he, a lot of the culture in my home uh, was very sheltered. Uh, again, I'm uh, not against being sheltered. There's a lot of good in it. But, uh, uh, you know, they were very much protect us from the world kind of thing. My first movie I ever saw was, in, uh, was Jurassic Park. I saw it seven times in the theaters, my first movie. Um, I was a junior in high school in 96, didn't know who Michael Jackson was. So, yeah, I was dated. I was quite dated. Um, but uh, I was sheltered. I was homeschooled. I have uh, three sisters, um, Sarah, Ann, and Brittany, and uh, they all live in Wisconsin. Um, I do have two stepsisters um, and a stepbrother. My one stepsister, stepsister is a missionary in, uh, in Mexico City. Um, all my family is believers. Uh, it's an incredible uh, blessing. But in this culture that I grew up in with my father and my mother, my mother uh, loved Jesus, man, and my dad loved Jesus. If you get my dad going, get him out to a restaurant, he'll have all the tracks out there, he'll hand them out, he writes the gospel. He loves the gospel. He loves it when people come to know Jesus. So I grew up with that. Um, but equally, running parallel with it, again, back to the enemy trying to distort. Um, I grew up in that whole culture of obedience is immediacy, and, uh, you know, honor and valor and high morals, high moral standards for yourself. And real quickly, I began to realize that obedience without love equals obligation. And obligation will kill the heart. Okay, obedience without love goes to obligation and obligation will always rob your heart. And never truly, you never get to the true meaning of why Jesus loves you, why he died for you. And so I grew up in that, you know, constantly trying to, I was, the, the, uh, there was a lot of sickness in my family. I have terrible memories of my, of my mother. She loved Jesus, but she had a lot of, a lot of sickness. She had lupus. She had uh, mental disorders. She had an extreme bipolar. Um, love her dearly, but those were realities. And I, I say that not to dishonor her. I, I, she was my best friend, my dearest she taught me everything I knew about Jesus. I remember fond memories of being homeschooled where my sisters would be on my side and we, my mom would be in the middle and she would open up the old picture Bible and we'd go through that. I mean, every single morning before math, before reading, was the picture Bible. And I grew this, this thing in me about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Um, I remember when I was five years old, I remember pulling on the, the, the coattails of my mom as she was making cookies. And I'm like, Mom, I have to be with Jesus. I have to be with him right now. And I remember, this is actually the earliest memory. I can't remember anything before this, really. But I remember her um, going like this, like, just a minute, Dan. And she had, like, cookies hanging off her fingers. Just a minute. And I, I no. I remember screaming, tears flowing down my head. I ran into my, my parents' room, and I went underneath their master bed. And I just wept and wept and wept. And the mom's like, oh my gosh, what, you know, did you get hurt? She ran in and pulled me out from my feet. Um, she sat me down on her, on her knees and she said, I go, mom, I have to be with Jesus. 
and that's where I remember she, she laid her hands on me. She prayed with me. That, and that's, I remember the tangible feeling of really Jesus walking into my heart and uh, feeling that as a five-year-old. And, uh, and again, as I'm feeling that, um, still high morals. I have to be a Christian. You know, the whole thing of modifying your behavior but not really understanding who God was. Um, my whole entire world got pretty much flipped upside down when I was age seven. Um, when we, my, I was born in the, my, my dad was actually stationed, but if you got back from, my sister was born in Stuttgart, Germany, and then when he got transferred to Colorado Springs as a base there, I was actually born at Colorado Springs uh, Air Force Academy. Then we moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, because my dad heard the voice of God. That's one of the only times he's actually shared with me that he heard the voice of God, which is cool, but also sad in some respects. Um, he said, I, I feel like I need to leave the Army. I, I'm going to join Campus Crusade for Christ, which uh, is sti he's still been a part of them for the last 40 years. We moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, where there was a family life uh, focus that was stationed there with Dennis Rainey. Uh, I, remember he, I remember growing up in that whole culture. Um, but uh, at age seven, when we moved from Little Rock, Arkansas, up to Mundelein, Illinois, to, for my dad to attend Trinity Evangelical School to go uh, get his master's in biblical counseling, I remember, I remember the phone call. We were sitting in our house that we were renting, and my dad just had this look of like, okay. And I'm like, what happened? He's like, our moving van um, that was traveling from Little Rock up to Illinois um, blew up, literally blew up. Uh, someone had been welding prior to loading the truck, and then when they loaded all of our stuff, we're talking everything, clothes, toys. I mean, we basically came to Illinois with the clothes on our backs. And um, he said, lost everything. He goes, when, when, they, when they smelled smoke, they opened the back of the, they pulled off on the side of the highway, they opened the back of the, the trailer doors, and it created like a backdraft, and it sucked in and just, you know, lost everything. I still remember walking through the warehouse where all of our stuff had been burned, and I remember <laughs> reaching into this box and pulling up, no joke, something about this. It was a ball of, like, melted plastic. It was all my Transformers, all my G.I. Joes, the 80s. And it was just literally just a ball of this blob. And I remember being just, I mean, it seems minor, but I remember going back home, sitting at the top of the stairs, and just, it's kind of funny now that I think of the dream my sister had, but I was sitting at the top of these stairs, and I just remember crying. And as a, as a seven-year-old thinking, my whole world is around these toys, what I have, and I have nothing. I remember, I remember saying, God, I give you my life again. Obviously, these things hold, hold me to this world more than I want them to. And so I gave my life to Jesus again <laughs> at, at the age of seven. Um, three weeks or four weeks later, we got a phone call that my mom uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer. And, you know, talk about your world in shatter. You lose everything, and then about four weeks later, you find out that you're, you're you know, the one that you look at is your best friend, your mom, the one that's been with me all my life and now has cancer. And it's the most helpless feeling ever. For those of you who have had cancer or survivors or those who have walked with people that have had cancer, it's one of the most defeating things ever. It's like the, like the lion's lurking out into the, the tall grass, and you don't quite know when he's going to pounce next. Um, she uh, went through multiple, multiple uh, things of chemo to the point where they couldn't do it anymore because she had no more veins. They were all fried. Um, she lost, kept on losing her hair. Um, she went into obviously have her breasts removed. She had to go in, and uh, I'll never forget, and I, I'm going to share this because this gives you a, a, a piece of how incredible my, my, my mom was. I remember when she was going in for her bone marrow transplant, what a lot of times can kill you. 
I remember grabbing onto, I, remember, I still remember the feeling. Again, I was probably at 10 years old. I remember grabbing onto the edge of the bed. And I looked at her as tears were just flowing down her eyes. She says, kids, if one person comes to know Jesus through this cancer, they will hit all. And they reeled her off. Uh, she almost died during that surgery. Um, they actually came out of that surgery. She was actually claimed cancer-free. Um, it was probably right around uh, the age of, uh, I'd say, four, uh, 13 or 14, where we went on our first, uh, our first uh, family vacation. We never really had a chance to go on any prior to that because of the sickness. Went to Disney World, and we got, uh, my mom still was weak, but we were pushing around in the wheelchair, and we got, you know, I was excited because uh, we didn't have to wait in lines. We got the special blue pass, you know, the, the special Mickey Mouse pass. And I got to go out front of the lines. Well, we made it at about a week into that two-week vacation. And my mom couldn't breathe. And we took her to the hospital, and they thought she had pneumonia. And uh, they said, I'm sorry, it's not pneumonia. Her lungs have filled with, with cancer tumors everywhere. Um, and so uh, they said, we don't give her much time to live. She actually went on a, on a juice, juice fast for the next two years, where I remember, I remember helping her juice carrots. And she actually, they say, it added about two years to her life. Um, but, uh, you know, just tons of juice, guys. And we're talking, like, juice. A lot of juice. I remember drinking it, too. She actually turned, or she turned orange. <coughs> um, but uh, I was 15 years old when my dad called me. I was out playing with my friends. And he called everybody. He says, your mom's not going to make it. Uh, 15 years old, I remember walking into her room. She was laying there, barely breathing. Um, and as we sat there, we were all holding hands. My grand and grandpa had showed up. Uh, my aunts and everybody was there. And uh, she was unresponsive at that point. The morphine had pretty much numbed her. She was n no pain probably. But right towards the very end as she took her last breath, I remember she went up and grabbed my dad, and she whispered something into his ear. Later found out she had told my dad, I want you to remarry and take care of my kids. And then she laid back down, and I saw, saw Jesus. I saw her smile, and she said, it's beautiful. And at that moment, she died, and I knew that she had seen Jesus. I knew at that moment that all the prayers that I had had for her were answered. You know, we often pray, you know, for healing, and I believe God heals. And we just prayed for Amy this morning that his ears would be healed again. I believe, I, I've seen healing. I've been healed. But we all have a time. We all, we all have a time that God has for us on this earth. And that was her time to go. Um, and probably the years that had came from that, I didn't, obviously, that revelation I have now, I've come to that. <laughs> but uh, from a 15-year-old, it tore our family apart. My sisters went into rebellion. I lost all my grandpa and grandmas because my dad remarried about a year later. It was a total sovereign God moment. Um, my family accused my dad of having an affair because there's no way that he could have married someone that quickly. Not true. My dad's many things. He's not, he's not a cheater. And I lost, my, I lost pretty much my whole family. I lost my grandma and grandpa because they wouldn't talk to my dad. Um, and so you have this 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old that's trying to keep his family together, that's trying to help. And I, going back to that original distortion that the enemy had in my heart, that I am obligated to do these things. I'm obligated to be the rescuer of my family. I'm obligated to do these things. I need to have a high moral standard for everything I do. But deep down, I had deep, deep uh, sin issues, addiction issues, 
On the outside, everybody in school, I led, I led a Bible study at a public school where we meet outside. We would pray. I would let all my friends to the Lord. Everybody saw me as going to be a missionary someday. But deep down, I was bitter. I was angry at God. I didn't think he was a good God. I think how can I believe as a Christian all my life that he can heal and he doesn't heal. That's my belief right now. But, um, but you know, I, I, I had this, this anger inside of me. And because of the works that I had been under all my life, the condemnation and the shame, for those of you who have been hit with shame and a condemnation from your struggles, it's real. It's dem- it's, it, 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 it completely immobilizes you to move forward. So that was pretty much, that was my story throughout high school. The first time, I, uh, and again, the one thing that's sad, guys, is I grew up in a Christian home literally all my life. But the only time I ever heard my dad once ever speak about God speaking to him was when he felt like to leave the army. And really, again, I don't, uh, I love my dad. My, my dad believes that God speaks, but it's not something that was really practiced or even taught. I remember all, I, I never missed a Sunday of church all my life, never once heard a message that God can live in you and speak to you, let alone lead your life and actually have a calling on your life. The first time I ever felt the draw of God was when I was a, a junior in high school. And again, amidst all this anger, I was going to, uh, I took my SATs six times. I got my first ACT score, guys, and they're like, you're in the top 90%, yes, of seventh graders. I'm like, oh, um, a terrible test taker. I took them six times to get into West Point. I actually did get a congressional nomination to go to West Point. Uh, a lot of it's because of my dad, but the, you know, following my father's footsteps, and I had a full ride there. I was one of only two two guys in Wisconsin in 97 that got accepted to go to West Point. And um, something, though, wasn't right. And I, didn't, couldn't ha- I didn't have the theology or really an understanding of what that was. And so what I, I started recognizing, I'm like, I'm not supposed to go there. I'm not supposed to go. And so I did this nice little thing where I sent off to a bunch of Christian colleges, you know, to Northwestern and to Bethel and to Grace College, to Wheaton College. I lived in Wisconsin, so it was all these, this basically this, this area. And uh, I sent off, they all sent me these really cool pamphlets. Uh, and Jenny's going to kill me, but I'm going to say, I opened the first pamphlet, and it was this Bethel College, Mishawaka, Indiana. And I opened it up, it was, you know, graphics were all neat. That was a little shallow. Um, opened up the first page, and there was this gorgeous lady that they had taken a picture of um, in their chapel service, and she was just lifting her hands like this. And I'm like, and they have hot girls. It is very shallow, I know. Um, but again, I had just visited West Point, guys. So, Nothing against military women, but uh, that's how I was, at the, you know, you know, a 17-year-old. I remember the day uh, that my, this literally where my life starts to change, guys. Um, I remember the day where I came into Bethel, and I'm walking through the campus, and this, this uh, professor of physics, because again, I went in as an engineering major because I needed the prestige. You know, I need to go to Bethel for two years, then I'm going to transfer um, from that into engineering to Notre Dame, because Notre Dame is very prestigious. And so uh, I remember walking through this campus, and this campus is not, back in 97, it's, it's not what it is today, but it, it was run down. Um, it just, Jenny will tell you, it's very, it was run down. I remember walking through it, and I remember saying under my breath, oh my goodness, I am not, not supposed to go up here. I remember walking behind my dad, and I had my lunch tray in my hands, and as I'm walking, I, I, you know, you know, like those old lunch, uh, you know, for those of you who went to college or high school, you know, 
you have these places where you can uh, like slap the food on there, and then they have the glorious cereal section, right? Where you, like, you turn the little knob, and it just like flows like the living water just right onto your plate. <laughs> the Lucky Charms was something I ate many, many times. Um, but I'm in this line, and I'm walking behind my dad to go to the table. The pr- professor's walking in front of him. I'm, on, I'm, I'm just walking with my food. And I say in my breath to God, I say, God, man, if you want me to come here, you're going to have to show me because you know, I'm not from here. And as I'm walking, I feel someone grab my shoulder, physically grab my shoulder and like pull me back. And I'm like, ex- I turn around and say, excuse me. Like no one was standing there. And as I turned around, um, my eyes caught the back wall. And something strange started happening to me that I've never had no theology for, never was in any church for, nothing. My tray was shaking. And I'm going, what is going on? And my dad's like looking at me, I'm like shaking. And as I turn around, my eye catches the back wall and they had projected the, uh, the scripture of the month. And uh, I started reading it. There's the one out of Timothy that says, uh, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, um, I've kept the faith. And it's the, scr- uh, the scripture verse that's on my mom's tombstone. And it's our family life verse, it was that place where no matter what, we're not going to give up. And as I read that, I heard God's voice for the first time. And he says, Dan, I have called and I have destined you to go to Bethel. And I s- okay, okay. I sat down, my dad's like, what? is going on mind you uh, you know my dad's a west point grad he uh but he he knew the lord enough to know and i go dad i'm supposed to come here and he goes yeah i know so i threw away an entire full ride everything he's like yeah i know to a a college is like thirty thousand a year and he's like i know dan you're supposed to be here um i went to college uh, my first semester and uh calculus quickly (laughs) deterred me from engineering (laughs) um (laughs) was that it was a disaster (laughs) Um, but, uh, that first four or five months guys of college, God brought me probably five to six other guys about my age that were all my dorm. And we would spend every Friday night, every moment we would get together and we would pray, we would go through deliverance. We would just be just, and God's spirit started moving on the campus so much so that I remember a Friday night where everybody's out going to movies and doing their thing. I remember these five guys would just hold me and I would just sit there and weep and weep and weep because I felt the shackles of my heart where I had the obligation and that curse of works that had robbed me for so long was breaking and God started to reveal his heart to me. He started to reveal what kind of father he truly is. And it just completely wrecked me. I met this amazing woman probably right in the middle of my freshman year. Um, We ended up getting married after my sophomore year. I got engaged, I was 19. The joke around my family was that she finished raising me. Because she, she was about a year and a half older than me. Um, and uh, she was about a year and a half older than me. She was there prior to me. And uh, we had got married about, about, a, about a year into marriage and went back through some of my old paperwork and found that pamphlet, guys. And that pamphlet that I originally saw as a, as a junior, the girl in that pamphlet was her. Yeah. So, yeah, I love you, honey. So I want to get into this last part here before we got about 15 minutes. Um, for the last, then from that point on, guys, I started, God started bringing me people. He brought me a mentor. 
He brought me friends. He brought me a ministry that started discipling me. Um, got baptized in the Holy Spirit probably eight months into my freshman year. That completely rocked my world. Uh, where the fire of God uh, came down and just started rolling up and down my body. F- literally saw fire moving up and down. Um, and it was for being clothed in power. Um, and it, that's exactly what happened. It was for me, first and foremost, to know the character of God. Second of all, for my giftings to come on fire. Number three was because he just loves me. He just loves to have fun with his children. And uh, I remember this, the, the, the things that started happening, uh, um, the revelations that started pouring into my spirit about his character. This is kind of where I want to I wanna pick up uh, from a scripture standpoint. I want you guys to turn over to, uh, let's see where I'm at here. I love 1 Samuel 16-7. First Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this word for in the Hebrew for heart is raha. Um, and it means to look at, to inspect, to perceive, to consider. Kind of has the same nature that it's the, the, per- the same perception that or consideration that a father would have for his children. And when you look at Psalm 103, 13, 14 through 13, it says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, and he is mindful that we are but dust. When God started downloading in my spirit all the, really the last, these last, uh, you know, 25 years, is that when he looks at my heart, it's not like man looks at it. He's, he's mindful and perceptive of so much more than we can see. If you think of, when we think of look, it's like, I look, there's a light stand. When God looks at it, he's thinking of like, have you ever seen those 3D models that spin in front of you? You can, on a computer, you can spin it forward, backwards, you can see everything. I, I've seen those, all like, like, they show you a picture of the heart. You can see just the ventricles and the different chambers, and they spin it around. That's what this is talking about. When God looks at your heart, he sees it in 3D models. He sees the backstory. He sees the generational curses. He sees the generational blessings. He sees the warfare that is happening over your heart right now. And he's looking at your heart through all of that. The real thing, guys, is he sees the why. When you sin and when you have this stuff going on in your life, you see that. He sees it too, but he sees now the backstory of why you're struggling with that. And do you realize that a lot of the things that you may struggle with you know, the Lord started coming to me. He goes, stop taking ownership. Stop owning these things as though they're, they're yours. He goes, these, these sins of your father's passed down to the fourth and fifth generation. He goes, Dan, I knew your great-great-grandfather who struggled with this very thing. And he goes, I see the power that's behind it. Let's have some grace here. When I started, my, 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 my vision in my 20s and 30s started being changed. That this God that I was angry at for, I thought, you know, not healing my mom, and not seeing how can I, you know, when Greg shared an incredible message about the problem with evil, um, which was awesome, that's what I was struggling with. How can, how can this bad things happen to good people? And I realized, this, man, God, God is so good. He's so good and so beautiful and so amazing that um, it takes time sometimes for those layers to be pulled back. It's like an onion. When God's after your heart, guys, he will peel layer after layer after layer. He's never done never done. 
I'll never forget uh, when I was a dispatcher for town air freight before I became a manager of Black Horse Carriers. I'll never forget when God drilled this home to me. I was uh, dispatching a driver. This driver was a hothead. He, uh, I said, hey, I'd like for you to go from point A to point B. Here's your truck. Here's your load. And in front of everybody, he proceeded to just yell at me, scream at me. You don't know what you're doing. You don't. You can't send me that. I'm not doing that. Just completely unloaded on me in front of all my peers. And again, I was the manager. And I'm just sitting there like, felt completely disrobed. You know, my, my, my feet cut right out from underneath me. Um, it's pretty common for me when you see me leave a room, I'm usually going to the bathroom to cry. I mean, that's the truth. Um, many of the bathrooms in these trucking companies right here, I've cried a lot in. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing, guys. I remember going in there. Instead of lashing out at the guy, I wanted to. My flesh was just like, how dare you? I remember going to the bathroom, and I'm about ready to go out and chew this guy out. And I hear God very, very, very gently say to me, he goes, Dan, you do not have the right to feel what you're feeling right now towards this man. He goes, he was beaten from his father as a child, and there's a wound there. And he's talking to you out of that wound. And he goes, and if you go out there and you manifest all over him of your junk, he goes, in fact, Dan, I actually brought him into your life for you to reveal what's in your heart. This is an opportunity now for that place in you to be, to be broken. So I had to make a choice. What do I do? Do I go out there and lash out at the guy and feel like I'm entitled? I finally realized that the judgments that I felt towards him were actually more of a realization of my own heart than it was of his. And in fact, almost 100% of the time, whether it's in your, your interactions with people, your marriages, what you feel and your judgments towards those other people is almost always an indication, first and foremost, of your own heart rather than the other person's heart. And I remember, you know, going out to this gentleman, and we're going to have a talk. Now, again, there's consequences for actions. And I don't I think he lasted long. Um, and, uh, you know, he, but he, the goal, the point is, is that my response to him was everything. The consequences far from a manager to a driver, those things play out. But my response to him was eternal. It was all about God's kingdom at that point. Until about me and God sinking something deep in my heart. And, and it's been amazing ever since that time. Um, he's used that over and over and over again to reveal, again, first and foremost, his heart for me and his heart for other people. Because, man, we're all messed up. We all have baggage. We all have a big backstory, and we have to. And, again, if we're going to be that church with those tools in our hands that come alongside of one another to rebuild this wall and unstop these wells, we have to see the best in each other's hearts. We have to get to the place where we're fighting for each other. You know, God has shown me a lot of times, our, you know, Jenny and I don't have a perfect marriage by any stance. But a lot of times we're like two cats where their tails are tied together and we're flung over a clothesline. It's like, <laughs> God gave me Jenny as like a, 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 like God uses her as like a, like a surgeon's scalpel to cut away the flesh of my own heart. And I am a surgeon's scalpel to her heart. The relationships in this room and the marriages in this room are just that. We are, are all here for that purpose of helping cut away the flesh of our hearts so we all can know more and more of the character of God. You know, so God is mindful of our past, our backstories. Guys, he's extremely mindful of the curse. I love uh, Galatians 5.17. This is the living translation. It says, the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly, not just occasionally, constantly fighting each other so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. 
I'm going to probably do a teaching and probably in a, next time I teach or down the road on, on really the, the foundation of what the curse is. And I love the teachings on what the tree of life, what, what kind of tree was it, um, and, the, and the, the kind of tree that was in the garden of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, and <coughs> going into what that curse really is. I'm, gonna go, I'm just going to touch on it real briefly here. Um, most of you are familiar with the scriptures when in Genesis 2.17, God defining what the curse is. It says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then you jump over to, to Genesis 3.1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than he o- any other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Right there, guys, right out of the gate, he's attacking God's character. Like that vaccine, he's starting to distort and twist into wickedness the original intention of God. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not even touch it or you will die. And the enemy's like, you certainly will not die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil, or knowing good and evil. And the enemy was right. If you want, and again, this is not an in-depth teaching on the curse, but one principle you can come away with from that scripture is that once they touched that tree of knowledge of good and evil, they did become like God. They had now the ability to look at their own heart and judge their hearts between what was good and what was right. That judgment is only reserved for the great judge, from, the white, from, the, from God. He is the only one that is given that right. And now when we touch or eat from that tree, we now have in our flesh the ability to do the same. And that, guys, when we do that, what does it say? It says, you will surely die. Now, did Adam and Eve, did they die right away, physical death? No, they, sl- they slowly started dying. The death they had immediately was that their spirit became dark. And what does it say they did? They ran out of fear. Always, when you walk out of, in the place of works, when you walk in a place of self-judgment, the result of it is always going to be fear, and it's always going to be shame, and it's always going to be condemnation. And back in my 20s and 30s, as God began to pull back like an onion, all those layers of my heart, he came to me one day, and my, my, one of my best friends, we were talking about this, and he looked at me, he goes, Dan, he goes, why do you think condemnation has such a foothold in your life? I mean, I believe the scripture in Romans that talks about, you know, for now there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I believe that, but I did not experience that. So one point where I'm, I had repented of some sin, and I still was walking around in days in this cloud, and I asked this person, I go, why do I keep walking around? And he goes, you were forgiven. He goes, now you have a new sin. You have a new sin, Dan. It's unbelief. Repent of that now. Let's move forward. And I remember him, we were talking about this, and he goes, what's, what's the root of condemnation, Dan? And we started talking about it. I'm like, it's pride. It's conceitedness. And we started chewing on that. Well, what does it mean to be conceited? And we kind of came up with this definition. Again, we're in college. We're just, um, I remember thinking conceitedness means to have an unrealistically high opinion of yourself. And then God gave me this really simple, simple illustration that has literally led, has, has kind of been like one of those beacons for the rest of my life. So I, now I have this understanding of that I'm walking and I'm a conceited individual. And God gives me this beautiful revelation of this alphabet. So I want you guys to picture this alphabet. It's kind of like in the elementary schools where they have the alphabet around the top of the room. You have A all the way down to Z. 
And God says every single individual, including you, Dan, is at some point along that alphabet. Okay, a new believer that just comes to know Jesus, um, they're at point A. And you maybe progress into discipleship, you move to point B, you get the the point. And uh, what he started to show me was when you're conceited, let's say in reality, on that alphabet, I am at point G. Let's say that's exactly where I'm at. But in my mind, in my flesh, and in my struggles, I think, I'm really at point M. And when I would fall into sin, the enemy would come every single time with, Dan, you are at point M, and you've now digressed all the way back to point G. And I would feel that shame and that fear come over me. And it's just like, you, you guys know what I'm talking about, that feeling when it comes over you? God started coming to, t- coming to me and saying, Dan, you were never at point M. You're always at point G. You never di- it's not about you digressing. You, were, you are where you are. And the sin that's coming out of you, I know it's there, but that's what you're at. The enemy always wants to come to you and tell you where you're not and where you're digressed. And again, I want a little disclaimer. When you're in that place where you are, um, th- the biggest difference is the difference between stumbling in your sin and wanting your sin. Proverbs talks a lot about a righteous man falls, what, seven times, but he gets, what, gets right back up. It's that place of when David, who actually committed some more heinous sins than even Saul did, he committed murder, he committed adultery, and all these things, but why at the end of his life did God still consider him a man after God's own heart? Because he understood this one principle where, he, I love in the Psalms, where he reaches out to God and says, God created me, what? A clean and broken heart, a contrite spirit. He knew that he was a sinful man. And when the prophet came and confronted him on the sin, did he run the other way? No, he broke. And there was consequences for his sin. The whole point, guys, is every single one of you is somewhere on that line. And if God can release some of this beautiful revelation to you, that's where you're at. Now, do you want to be there? And does God want you to stay in that point? No. I, I love the interaction that, uh, that Jesus has with Peter. Um, and you guys can, this is the last one I want to go to before I close, but Luke 22, I love this. Luke 22, 31 through 62, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he may sh- uh, sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to the death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied me three times that you know me. Let's just say Peter was at point G. God said, you're at point G. And Peter's like, no, I'm not. I'm at point M. I, I'll go, I'm at the point in my walk with you, God, that I will die. And, and, and Jesus is like, no, no, you're not. You're actually right here. And in fact, right where you're at, you're going to deny me three times. And you notice Jesus didn't say, oh, I prayed that you wouldn't sin. God wasn't concerned about the sin. He says, when you have fallen, I pray that your faith would not give up. I pray that you come back and then go strengthen your brothers. I want to take you from point G to point M. God always comes with hope. He always comes with his true character. Always. And if you ever feel anything other than that, guess what, guys? It is a lie. It's a lie straight from the pits of hell. And uh, I love our prayer time here before we start. Ariel had a really cool word about how taking our thoughts captive. The playground of the enemy is right here. If you don't take your thoughts captive, the enemy will come and he will run rampant. The goal of the enemy is to get to a place where you're no longer stumbling, but you're actually just walking your sin and not repenting anymore. 
Sin is, uh, the scripture is chock full of scripture warning us of the deceitfulness of sin, of that when it goes unrepentant, it goes to that place where it's not gone unchecked, that we actually can digress. And that is scary. And that's a place where we don't want to be. But if you guys are in a place where you want God and you want him to, to, to know your whole backstory, he knows it all anyways, and say, Lord, I give you my backstory, I give you all the stuff, I want to move forward in my walk with you. It has to start by you accepting who he is as God in your life. It has to start there. I love uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it says where Paul says um, he doesn't care if he is judged by anyone, and he doesn't even judge himself. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes, and he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of men's hearts. I really come, I come back to this place where I feel like God started off the service with this place of water up front. And it's a place of healing. I mean, I mean, God wants to bring healing on multiple levels. Some of the greatest healing that's done, been done in my heart is those tough things that he has to pull back of years and years of bitterness, of anger towards him. It's like there's nothing more freeing, guys, than you guys can be emotionally healed, uh, emotionally touched by God. And as a father has compassion on his children, he's mindful of everything, guys. He's mindful of what you came in here with this morning. He really, really is opening an invitation to you to come to know him in a deeper way. If you've never met him before, if you've never known him before, do you want him? What does your heart say? Answer those questions, man. They're, they're worthy of the fight. They're worthy questions to ask, and there's something that he wants to give you today. So as we go into this last worship song, I'm going to invite the team up to come up here and pray. If you need prayer, that condemnation, shame, fears broken off your life. I'll be up here to pray, Andy. Whoever needs that broken off your life, we can't be that body that rebuilds that wall until we do so.